Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's mid-September and I'm at the pub. Not just any pub, mind. I have come to the village of Rodmel in East Sussex to the Abergavenny Arms, a 15th century pub with dark wood beams and a delightful atmosphere. But I'm not here for beer or for food, although I have actually enjoyed both. Rather, I've come to a back room of the pub to toss a coin down the wishing well here. Back in 2018, the wishing well at the Abergavenny Arms was emptied of its coins, which raised over £1,000 for charity. And although a wishing well in a pub is quite unusual, in just about every well or fountain in England, you will find coins that people have tossed inside, hoping for good luck. Since the days of Edward I, though, we've had an idiom in England about bad pennies. This relates to people making coins with fewer rare metals in than they should have, degrading the currency. And since that time, people have said a bad penny always turns up. I don't know if you've ever made a wish on a coin or another object and thrown it away, hoping to bend fate to your will. But imagine if you did just that, yet the token you discarded came back to you reminding you that as much as you want to defy fate, it's really your master and not the other way around. Well, with this thought in mind, gather close around the Three Ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree Down a down, hey down a down were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. 
Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts. Eleanor Conlon. Hello, and we should start the episode by saying a warm thank you and welcome to our new supporters on Patreon, mm-hmm. Emily, Katya, Lindsay, Renee, Smith and Kath. All hail Emily, King of Patreon. All hail Katya, King of Patreon. All hail Lindsay, King of Patreon. All hail Renee, King of Patreon. All hail Smith. King of Patreon. All hail Kath, King of Patreon. Thank you all so much for joining our Conspiracy of Ravens and supporting the podcast. And if you would like all of our episodes early and ad-free, as well as exclusive content, including our monthly Three Ravens newsletter, exclusive episodes, episodes of the Film Club, and our stories as text versions and more besides, please consider signing up for just $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. Speaking of which, last Thursday we released our Patreon exclusive episode for the month, the rather ornately titled Mega Mabon Autumn Equinox Special, <laughs> all about the history of the Autumn Equinox and celebrations surrounding it, plus a story all about the god Mabon and his adventures with King Arthur. It's a corker, even if we say so ourselves. And uh, next week we'll also be releasing our Three Ravens Film Club episode for the month, which will be all about an American werewolf in London. So if you haven't seen the film, then do give it a watch and email us your thoughts or post them on social media so we can include your thoughts on our movie for September in the episode. Also, in terms of emailing us things, we are very keen to hear from you in general, mm. as ever, via 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com. In particular, we're looking for folklore from you. Yes. So any anecdotes, favoured folktales or stories from your area to include in our upcoming second listener episode. And we also want your entries for our winter folklore card competition. Yes, please. And just a reminder on the card competition, Competition. We're looking for original work from artists of all skill levels. Thank you very much, Paco, for your entry this week. It's lovely. It is. Um, we're still quite thin on the ground, though, in terms of entry. So please get painting, drawing, sketching, whatever you're into art-wise, and send us a JPEG of your work as inspired by the folklore of winter. And we will pick our favourite three entries after the end of Series 2 to turn into greetings cards. Those greetings cards will, of course, then be printed and sold through our shop at 3ravenspodcast.com for a 50-50 profit share with the winners. So everyone can send exciting, folky Christmas cards to their friends and family this year. Right. Well, we're releasing this episode on Monday the 18th of September, which is notable for two pretty esoteric celebrations the samuel johnson commemorations in staffordshire and linking back to last week's surrey episode the Suffolk Fair. Hold on a minute. When you say Samuel Johnson, do you mean Dr. Samuel Johnson, writer of dictionaries? <laughs> yes, I do. One of the most important figures in English cultural history. He of Dr. Johnson's Dictionary, one of the first ever English dictionaries, as well as several other important poems, plays, novels, including his edition of the plays of William Shakespeare, his uh, novel Rasselas, Prince of Abyssinia, and his Lives of the English Poets. I mean, don't get me wrong, Samuel Johnson was a fascinating man. But he gets a special day, a yeah. commemoration. Yeah, like a saint, indeed. In Litchfield, where he was born, they hold a big supper, a wreath laying at his statue, and a commemoration service in the cathedral. You said esoteric. I mean, that is incredibly specific. Hardly a national celebration. No, admittedly, it isn't. But it's very strange, so I like it. Um, elsewhere, as mentioned, since... 
1462, September 18th, was the date of the Southwark Fair, the biggest fair in London. Well, this sounds fun. Yeah, only they stopped holding it in 1762. What? Yeah, it's one that needs reviving because it sounds like it was amazing. Southwark, in case you aren't familiar, is an awesome part of London. And for about 300 years, there was a huge fair there every year, including circus performers, dancing, music, plays, puppet shows, drinking, and of course, loads of trading and food and all sorts. But for a time, it was so popular that it went on for two weeks, starting on September 18th. But it more usually went on for three days and involved processions over London Bridge, all before it was stopped because the residents complained about it being so raucous and tending to, and I quote, lead only to the destruction of youth of both sexes and the encouragement of thieves and strollers. Well, that sounds like a great old time. I'd also like to include stroller on my business card. Oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, but uh, the fair doesn't exist anymore. No, alas. Oh, come on, people of Southwark, let's revive it. Martin and I will come and we'll do some shows and buy some things, do some strolling. Yeah, It'll be yeah. fun. <laughs> well, let's hope they hear us. And in the meantime, shall we prevent the county criers from engaging in the destruction of youth of both sexes? and ring us into Northumberland. Yeah, we'd best. Come on now, you thieves and strollers. What would Dr Johnson think? Northumberland is located in the northeast of England. It historically bordered Scotland to the north, the North Sea to the east, County Durham to the south, and Cumberland to the west. As always, there's a map showing its precise location on the blog at threeravenspodcast.com. So with Northumberland bordering Scotland, that must mean it also contains parts of Hadrian's Wall. That's absolutely correct. Hadrian's Wall runs across Cumberland and Northumberland. And to hear us talking more about Hadrian's Let's Wall... Let's be honest, geeking about Hadrian's Wall. Yeah, OK, to be fair. To hear us geeking about uh, Hadrian's Wall in detail, then do check out our Cumberland episode where we talk about it in some depth. <laughs> OK, well, I have to admit, I don't really know anything about Northumberland, so this is going to be exciting. But I did notice you said something about historic boundaries in your little intro there, yeah. which suggests to me that some of what was once Northumberland is no longer in Northumberland. Yeah, Same mean, old story yeah. as so many of these historic counties. I mean, that is very much the case. In particular, the ceremonial county of Tyne and Weir was peeled off in 1974, which includes some famous places, including including the city of Newcastle and the towns of Gateshead and South Shields. I have obviously heard of Newcastle and actually of Gateshead and South Shields too, yeah. uh, astoundingly. <laughs> so maybe I do know more about Northumberland than I think I do. <laughs> and in terms of the county as it is now, what's the county town today? So today it's more Peth, which isn't the biggest town, that's Blythe. But for our purposes, looking at the historic counties of England, the seat and historic county town of Northumberland was Newcastle. Well, that's interesting. I'm not sure we've heard of a historic county town being peeled off into a different county before. Have we? We, we haven't actually it's a first and it reflects the significance of newcastle or newcastle upon tyne to give it its full title which has been one of those major cities in england's history in fact it 
split off from Northumberland in 1400 originally, so a very long time ago, in no small part because it was so wealthy. Oh, okay. What, what made it so rich? Well, that's actually quite a long story. The very short version is that it was incredibly important for shipping and trade, especially of wool and coal, even back in 1400. But it was fought over pretty relentlessly until the 11th century when William the Conqueror's eldest son, Robert, was sent up to what was then called Monkchester, where he built, well, a new castle to help defend against the Scots. <laughs> That's brilliant. I mean, I probably should have guessed, but it's it's called Newcastle because they had a new castle. Yep. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> <laughs> so but jumping in at the Normans would be a mistake in Northumberland because it has a mega rich history dating way back to the Mesolithic. Oh boy, well this sounds exciting. It genuinely is. And spoiler alert, there is no way in holy hell I can hope to summarise Northumberland's history in the time I have. It's a thoroughly amazing and fascinating county. But I'll try to give some greatest hits. Excellent. Well, more spoils for me for next year when it's my turn. So there's a very important place in Northumberland called the Howick House, located near the tiny village of Howick on the coast of the North Sea. And Howick House is this Mesolithic roundhouse dating from, hold your breath, 7,600 BC, so almost 10,000 years ago. What? I mean, wow. I, I, I've got to say, I didn't think that people really built houses in the sense we understand yeah. them now 10,000 years ago. Yeah. Wasn't it more of a nomadic well, existence? Well, indeed. So, I mean, we've never really talked about the difference between the Paleolithic and the Mesolithic on the podcast. But for clarity, the word Paleolithic means old stone age and we think about this era of prehistory as lasting from about three million years ago to about twelve thousand years ago when the mesolithic kind of kicked in if i remember rightly the word mesolithic means middle stone age yeah, doesn't it exactly and that lasted for about two thousand years from roughly ten thousand bc until eight thousand bc being replaced by the neolithic or new stone age which in britain ended about four and a half thousand years ago so around two thousand five hundred bc when we got the this age of great megalithic building leading into the Bronze Age. Okay, so my understanding was that we didn't really get many stone houses or round houses until the Neolithic period, which must make Howick House pretty rare. Yeah, it was for quite a while considered the oldest house ever found in the British Isles, though it lost that title in 2010 when another house structure was found at Star Car in Yorkshire. And that one is thought to date from 11,000 years ago. These spans of time are just really hard to wrap your mind around, mm, aren't they? Yeah. So this is a time before writing, before metal, when people basically lived using stone antlers and flint and yeah. lived rather well yeah, using they, stone antlers and flint. They kind it's of did. kind of an alien world. Yeah, it, it is. And because of a lack of written records, a lot of what we know about culture in that time, or those times, I guess, well, it's pretty speculative. But in terms of Hoek House specifically, there's a reconstruction you can go and visit, and it's pretty damn cool. Well, I can see why you said you're not going to be able to give a comprehensive history of Northumberland <laughs> now. No. If you're starting 10,000 years ago, it's quite a time frame. <laughs> it is, and I'm not going to give a blow-by-blow. Blow, but what's really important to know about Northumberland is even from the earliest points in its history, we know that the borders between Scotland 
Scotland and Northumberland were not where they are now. So you had Brythonic Celtic tribes with territory stretching from Edinburgh down to Northumberland, one of them called the Votadini, and then you had the Brigantes as well, who we've talked about before, they're sort of south of the border, as it is today. It's so interesting when you think about it, because the notion of Scotland and England and that border, mm. certainly in this country, are really baked into our consciousness. Yeah. Or, you know, it's to me. Uh, but of course, until the Romans came along, the dividing line that we think of wasn't really there at all. No, it wasn't at all in this period. So... In the middle of that borderland, as we now see it, you've got some pretty amazing Bronze Age megaliths, including Dodo Five Stones and the Goat Stones, which are both pretty close to Hadrian's Wall. Loving this so far. It seems like Northumberland is just brimming with amazing things to oh, see. you're telling me, my goodness. Anyway, so from 78 AD, you had the Roman governor Agricola moving north into the Roman power base at Eboracum, at what is now York, conquering much of Northumbria and extending Deer Street to what eventually became Hadrian's Wall. Only then, of course, a little bit later, the Romans left, and then things get even more interesting. What do you mean more interesting? How can this get more interesting? <laughs> well, then came the Angles and the establishment of the kingdoms of Bernicia and Deira. Oh, yeah, of course, the kingdom of Northumbria. Yeah, so Northumbria didn't develop overnight. Uh, first, you had the consolidation of Deira with its power base at the site of what is now Bamba Castle, one of the most amazing stunning, extraordinary buildings in all of England. Is that the one that's right on the sea? Yeah. I mean, I'll put pictures on the blog. It, it kind of has to be seen to be believed, but wow, and by gum, and oh my goodness gracious, it's incredible. What a castle. Oh, yes. And then from the end of the 6th century, Venetia and Deira united, leading into what's known as the Golden Age of Northumbria, where the kingdom stretches right across northern England from basically North Wales to what is now the Humber along its southern border, then right up to the Firth of Forth, north of Edinburgh in Scotland, and kind of diagonally back down across Scotland to Cairn Ryan. So it was massive. So you just said something that this might seem really obvious yeah. to our listeners, but um, wasn't to me. So it's got got me thinking. Yeah. You mentioned the Humber, yes. which is this huge river estuary that today kind of marks the border between Lincolnshire and Yorkshire, yes. I think. And Northumberland contains the word Northumberland. Yep. Is that literally it? Is that how the county got its name? It is. So... The people north of the Humber. I love early English naming conventions. <laughs> Tell it like it is. That's yep. exactly what it says on the tin. <laughs> Northumbria was huge. Yes. And I know about it because, well, firstly, uh, Bede mentions it in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People from the 8th century. Mm -hmm. But more excitingly, I, as everybody probably knows by now, I'm very interested in the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy. And Northumbria was one of the big players in that whole scenario. It absolutely was. And again, if the term is unfamiliar, the Heptarchy was this period in English history where England was split into seven kingdoms, with Cornwall, or Dumnonia, not included down in England's southwest tip. Then you had Wessex right across southern England, save for Sussex, or the Kingdom of the South Saxons. And then you had 
had the Kingdom of Kent in the very southeast corner, above which was the Kingdom of the East Saxons. Also known as Essex. Yep. And then you had the Kingdom of the East Angles, or East Anglia, to there, Essex's northeast. Then you had Mercia across central England. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And then sitting above them all across England's north was Northumbria. And let's not muck about. Sussex, Essex, Kent and East Anglia were relatively insignificant in scale yeah. compared to Wessex, Mercia and Northumbria. That is very true. And while Northumbria was jolly large, the kingdom was super important culturally, not least because the kings of Northumbria also captured the Holy Island of Anglesey and the Isle of Man and Lindisfarne. And it's during the golden age of Northumbria that you get one of the most important pieces of art in the history of this country, maybe the world, the 8th century Lindisfarne Gospels. It's not just the Gospels, which are almost unbelievably beautiful, but Lindisfarne is also where St Cuthbert, who we've talked about, Mm. spent most of his lifetime. Um, I refer people back to our Durham episode for more about St Cuthbert. Yes. But there's also St Aidan, who literally brought Christianity to England. And Lindisfarne is, of course... Very famous for being raided by the Vikings in the 8th century. When you think about Vikings going for monks, Lindisfarne is what you're thinking of. And that actually more or less pulled the trigger on the starting come for the Norman invasion. Indeed, and very neatly summarised, Eleanor. Okay, so it's clear to me now... I actually know quite a lot about Northumberland (laughs) that I didn't even know I knew. Yeah, you really do. But I didn't, but I do. Yeah, you do. Because although, of course, Northumbria is not the same as Northumberland, Lindisfarne is still part of Northumberland. And you can go to Holy Island, which remains connected to the mainland by a tidal land bridge that you can walk across and visit the place where 1,300 years ago, a single monk scratched out and beautifully illuminated the earliest known English Bible, which is filled with these incredible illustrations of animals and saints. It's kind of a miraculous thing, honestly. And one of the things I love most about it is the mistakes. What do you mean the mistakes? Well, the monk who created the Lindisfarne Gospels included a mistake on every page, normally hidden, with the idea that perfection would be something only attainable to or appropriate for God. So he had to spoil it as a kind of devotional act. That's amazing. Mm. So you started... 10,000 years ago, and you've managed to get up to the 8th century. (laughs) You're doing well, but you are running out of time here, so I I have to hurry you. Okay, so skipping along a ways, uh, Northumbria ceased to exist from 927 when Athelstan united England. The Scots claimed their territories back in the early 11th century, and then the Normans pitched up, of course, engaged in the harrying of the North, (laughs) which I will talk about a bit more in our season finale. Before, as was their way, they built a ton of cathedrals in Northumberland. When you say a ton, how many are we talking? Well, you've got, in chronological order, Lindisfarne, Hexham, Tynemouth, Newminster, Olnwick, Brinkburn, Holm, and Blanchland. So that's Eight, all wrecked by Henry VIII, oh, by the way, plus twelve castles, including the aforementioned Newcastle and Bamber. Now we know that anywhere there are lots of Norman castles, yeah. there are inevitably lots of wars and fights, yes. which 
I'm presuming in this case come care mostly of the Scots. Well, spot on. I mean, right through until the Jacobean era, there were frequent raids from north of the border and the county had significant involvement in the Wars of the Roses and the Civil War, not to mention the Rising of the North in 1569, led by the Percy family, Mm -hmm. so the Earls of Northumberland, and the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715, after which, during the Industrial Revolution, the county became a fundamental part of the Industrial Revolution, as well as shipbuilding and armaments manufacture. That must bring us something close to up to date. In this podcast, <laughs> the 19th century is yeah. as, as modern as we generally dare to go. Kind of, kind Unless of. there's some very interesting modern facts yeah, about the yeah. area. <laughs> you just, um, I realise I've got another Northumberland connection. Yeah, go on. You just mentioned the Percy family. Yes. And of course, um, Harry Percy is in Shakespeare's Henry IV play. Indeed. And he is the Earl of Northumberland. Yeah, yeah. Should have made that connection earlier. Yep, Hotspur. Quite right. <laughs> so, can we dare to talk about folklore now? We've definitely gone through all of the history. Well, not all <laughs> of the history, but some highlights. And I think we can. Um, I'm going to have to limit myself even for that. And for much, much more Northumberland folklore, I highly recommend checking out our friend within the Boggart Wood, whose entire podcast is just about North County's folklore. There is so much there. He's made a series just limited to this kind of neck of the woods. Wow. Speaking of which, should we start with the Boggarts of his eponymous Boggart Wood? Are there many famous Boggarts from Northumberland? Well, this is a very interesting thing, actually, because it's very important never to name a Boggart. Excuse me? So... Boggarts, also known in some quarters as bogles, boggles, bogies, and indeed goblins, are various kinds of ghosts or evil spirits much famed in northern England. They're generally described as looking like bestial, ugly, distorted, human-shaped creatures. And it's said that if you name a boggart, then that actually increases its power. So it's very bad luck to name them or link them to places for fear that talking about them makes them stronger. That's so interesting. Mm. I really like the idea of people being afraid to name the thing because naming gives it more influence or significance. So yeah. we can we can have the boggart at the bottom of the garden, but if we start calling him Brian, yeah, that's a real that's right. no-no. Or the boggart of our garden. Yeah, it's something as simple as that. Then, oh, it, then, really? then, then that makes it stronger. So, yeah, interesting, isn't it? And boggarts are distinct from another kind of ghost or fairy from the area called a blue cap, which appears in mines and caves. A bit like the knock of Devon and Cornwall only, blue caps materialise as little patches of blue light or fire down in the mines. It said that they could be very helpful rather than malicious, but the key was for miners to leave a full miner's wage for the blue caps deep in the mines to pay them for their dues. Then the blue caps, if paid, would lead miners to rich veins of minerals and metals and so on. Well, that's lovely. What a great little creature. <laughs> thanks, blue caps. Yeah, they don't want your thanks, though. They want payment out of that. I empathise. <laughs> so they stand in stark contrast to red caps, which are deeply unpleasant. Are they another kind of fairy? No, they are a kind of goblin that appears looking like an emaciated, crookedly old man wearing a red cap only if they capture you they will suck your blood oh no doesn't sound good (laughs) no it does not in particular lord william de soul was a border lord from scotland who roved into northumberland in the 14th century and it said that he had managed to enslave a red cap called 
Red Robin. And between de Souls and Red Robin, the people of Northumberland were regularly terrorised and fed upon, all until he was rounded upon by a mob and boiled alive inside a stone circle near the Scottish border called Nineston Rag. Oh, wow. Can you imagine being boiled alive? That has got to be one of the worst ways to die imaginable. Ooh, horrible. Still, if you will send a vampiric goblin familiar out to suck the blood of the locals... You kind of got it coming. <laughs> you kind of do. And, and off the back of the blue caps, just to continue on mythical creatures whose names start with the letter B, there's also plenty of legends of brags in Northumberland, including the Pick Tree Brag, the Hazel Rig Dunny, and the Headley Cow. That's K-O-W. And basically, brags are a kind of impish creature which disguise themselves as other things, usually a horse, donkey, or cow. But which, when someone tries to ride or lead them, then they'll either buck them off or chuck them into a river or generally terrorise them and get up to mischief. It's fair enough. I don't want people hopping on my back. No, perhaps not. Although the headly cow is maybe more ingenious because that one is said to sometimes transform itself into a pot of gold that inevitably people try to drag home, only eventually, after a long time dragging it, it turns back into this four-legged creature and runs off. Oh, I would be so annoyed if that happened to me. I've got to say, not loving the idea of these brags. They can stay away from me. Thank you very much. <laughs> and although I'm barely scratching the surface here, I really like this ghost story. It's called The Cold Lad of Hilton. This relates to Hilton Castle in Sunderland, where it said the Baron killed his stable boy, Robert Skelton, in the dead of winter during the Tudor era and hid the body covering the grave with snow. Uh-oh, tell me how he got his just desserts. Well, it's said that the ghost of Robert Skelton returned to him, repeating and saying over and over again, I'm cold. And the Baron, on seeing the spectre, died of a heart attack. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's excellent. Yeah, only that didn't put Robert Skelton's ghost at ease. And to this day, it's said the ghost will still appear in or around the castle grounds, repeating those words over and over. I'm cold. That's not nice. Ghosts (laughs) are scary enough, but ghost children, that I can really live without. (laughs) Indeed. But you know what you like even more than ghosts? Worms. Oh, not worms. Sneaky things are not my (laughs) favourite. I know. But as with a lot of the northern counties of England, such as Durham and Cumberland that we've spoken about already, Northumberland has its own legends of worms, including the Laidley Worm of Spindleston Hughes. Spindly worms? That sounds even worse. (laughs) I think I could just about cope with a girthy worm, but a horrible little spindly one. Oh, no. It's all right. It's only the name, Spindleston Hughes. So it's it's not necessarily the worm itself, but spindly. Now, this legend relates to the story of Child Wind and his sister, the son and daughter of a king of Northumbria who takes a witch as his bride after the death of his wife. This is all recounted in a famous and very old ballad during which Child Wind uh, travels overseas, leaving his sister at home where the new witch queen, jealous of her youth and beauty, turns her into the Laidly Worm, which makes its lair at Spindleston Hughes eating cattle, terrorising people, all those good things that worms get up to. Wind then returns home and heads out to kill the worm, but before killing it, he hears his sister's voice in his head and instead kisses the serpent three times, 
The princess is then restored to human form and the witch queen eventually turned into a toad. Oh, that's very wholesome. What a brilliant story. <laughs> yeah. I feel really inspired by that. Yeah, Might cool. have to retell that at some stage. It's really cool, isn't it? And this whole story was linked to a real place. Alas, the worm's lair was destroyed by quarrying in the 19th century. But the spindle stone or bridal stone still stands near to Bamba Castle. Much as I'd like to visit Bramber, I'm not going worm hunting. <laughs> Even if she is secretly a princess, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely not up for kissing her. So not for me, thanks. <laughs> okay, well, before I crack on with my story this week, we just have time to talk about the beast from Northumberland. This one being the beast of Bolam Lake. Ooh, is this a big dog beast or a big cat beast? It is, interestingly, neither. What is it then? It's a yeti. Whoa. <laughs> we haven't had a yeti or a Bigfoot-style creature for ages. Uh, not since the Beast of Tunbridge Wells, I think. Yeah. So this one is said to be about eight foot tall from people who've seen it. I mean, to be fair, there's said to be more than one, with recent sightings taking place since the year 2000. There are lots of old legends of Ettins, Yetins or Jotuns in Northumberland. These are all kinds of ogreish giants that bother roads, including Cobb's Causeway. But around Bolam Lake, near Sunderland, it's said that you need to be careful because there are these big, hairy, Bigfoot-style creatures stalking in the woods. Wow, I have never made the connection between Yetis and Jotuns before yeah. a sort of old Norse giant race. That's right, yeah. That's so interesting. Isn't it? Wow. Well, I feel like we've been on quite the journey around Northumberland, <laughs> and you said there's lots more you've not covered. Oh, so, so much more. But now it's story time, and my tale today is called The Fish and the Ring. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's no secret that the reign of Queen Elizabeth I was a time of magic. And though the list of spellcasters, mavens and alchemists of that age is long, none of them were as wealthy or powerful as Henry Percy. The ninth Earl of Northumberland, Percy had gold enough without changing it from base metals. He was the head of the School of Night, which met at Sion House in London, a group which had amongst its members over time Dr John Dee, Christopher Marlowe, George Chapman, Sir Walter Raleigh and John Donne. Indeed, when John Donne married Anne Moore, resigning himself to a life of penury, it was Percy who carried the letter announcing the news to her father. 
Many know of Percy's imprisonment in the Tower of London, tried in Star Chamber for involvement in the gunpowder plot, though today we know, just as they did then, there was no evidence of his involvement. Still, the Tower was a familiar setting for the Percys, for Henry's father had been imprisoned there three times for aiding Mary, Queen of Scots, and died there, shot in the heart at the orders of the Vice-Chamberlain, a murder announced to the public as a suicide. This was in contrast to his grandfather, Thomas, who was hanged, drawn and quartered at Tyburn for his rebellion during the Pilgrimage of Grace, and to his uncle, who had loved Anne Boleyn and been the one who, as a juror at her trial, collapsed when the verdict was passed, dying of a broken heart. Still, from their seat at Olnwick Castle, a little inland from the North Sea, the Earls of Northumberland were always some of the richest men in England. As such, the wizard Earl, Henry Percy, took his 16 years of imprisonment in his stride. Attended by 20 servants in the Martin Tower, which he had lavishly decorated and furnished with one of the finest libraries of the age, he continued to meet Thomas Harriet. Walter Warner and Robert Hughes, men known as Northumberland's Three Magi, right up until they died and he was freed. It was his Magi who did his bidding beyond the prison walls, for Percy was a furious man, vindictive and preoccupied with matters of blood. A descendant of the brave knight Henry Hotspur, he came from a long line of rebels resistant to the crown. In his mind, his children should only marry amongst the most powerful and noble families in the land. For this reason, he kept his daughter, Lucy, imprisoned with him at the tower to prevent her marriage to James Hay, the Earl of Carlisle. Percy said he would not have Lucy dance to a Scottish jig. But for all Percy's power and cunning, she escaped, aided by the Earl and Countess of Somerset, marrying Hay, who, in turn, actually fought for Percy's release. When he was finally freed, due to his son-in-law's endeavours, the wizard Earl was deaf and almost blind, and he never recovered his strength. He died at Petworth House in 1632, too weak to journey back to Onwick Castle, recently restored to his only son and heir. And on his deathbed, the wizard Earl muttered wildly of his greatest regret, of his battle with fate which drove a wedge between himself and his only son, Algernon. The matter of their great feud began when Algernon was but a newborn. In those dark days at the end of the Nine Years' War, months before the Queen died and his ally, Raleigh, was imprisoned for treason, Henry Percy drew a thimble of Algernon's infant blood. He sat alone before his obsidian mirror, burned the blood and summoned angels to the showstone. They told him news he did not want to hear. His line would soon be ending. It would be Algernon's fate to marry a girl named Anne, a woman of inferior blood who would bear him only daughters. For Henry Percy, such a fate for his son would be unthinkable, and so, with iron determination, Percy set about controlling Algernon's life from daybreak to sunset, his every hour prescribed, his every movement monitored. Simultaneously, Percy set to seeking for Anne, sending his men to scour Northumberland. 
And though it took him some weeks, he found her, the girl unto whom his son was betrothed by destiny. She was the daughter of a lowly fisherman living on the banks of Devil's Water. He knew her on sight, having seen her in the obsidian mirror, though she was then still but a wordless babe, dabbling at the edge of that fast-flowing brook. She was a dark-haired creature with snow-pale skin and fay-like eyes of greyish-green. He approached the lowly fisherman and reached for his coin purse, retrieving three gold pieces and offering them as payment. The fisherman, though flushed with shame, accepted this sudden fortune and sold Anne to Henry Percy. The fisherman presumed she would now live in Alnwick Castle and be raised as a lady. Yet the wizard earl had other plans. Percy placed the child before him on his horse and rode to Corbridge. There he took the smiling babe in his arms, stood high on the bridge above the River Tyne, and dropped her into the black-green water. His quest accomplished and fate defied, Percy rode back to Olnwick and continued Algernon's instruction. Since the boy's mother had been executed in 1601 after allegations of treason, Henry was free to ignore the will of her side of the family, the meddling Devereux. With other business to attend to in London, Henry therefore appointed the accomplished tutor, alchemist and natural philosopher Edward Dowes to raise his son, proceeding south at his earliest convenience. His parting gift to his son was a ring made of pure gold, inlaid with the symbol of the House of Percy, a lion rampant carved from the bluest lapis lazuli, the band inscribed with the family motto, Espérance en Dieu, Hope in God. Only Anne had not drowned in the river where the wizard earl had dropped her. Instead, as if rescued by forces beyond sight or knowing, her frail body tumbled downstream and was discovered, by chance, by Henry Neville, the Baron of Bergaveni. Neville, out hunting with his men in the forest of Kildare, was astounded to find a child emerging from the river's foam, not least one, he thought, so beautiful, so intriguing and so strange. He considered it as an omen and took her with him to meet with his friend and the wisest man he knew, Sir Robert Cecil. Cecil, a hunchback known for years as the Queen's Pygmy, had long been spymaster to the crown. Once protégé to Francis Walsingham, Cecil had inherited his father's interest in the occult, including his rafts of letters from Edward Kelly, and he remained a patron of the secretive alchemical alliance known as the Society of the New Art. Though Cecil held little stock in the transmutational experiments of William Medley, he was a great friend of Robert Flood, who he had inspect the girl to learn more of her mysterious lineage. It was many years until Anne appeared again in public, though when she did, it was as Lady Anne Cecil, daughter of King James' most trusted adviser. By then, Cecil was known as the King's Little Beagle, having long since reveled in the success of the Treaty of London, where he'd hired the playwright William Shakespeare and his actors to serve as diplomats to the Spanish delegation. A member of the Order of the Garter, discoverer of the gunpowder plot, Cecil had since swept the board clean of his old enemies, one amongst them being Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. 
Since the wizard Earl's arrest, he had, for long spells, ensured that Algernon was imprisoned alongside him. They were not lacking in amusement, for Percy's prison included a bowling alley, tennis courts, and he would watch Algernon at fencing, having the boy taught from ancient books with the same seemingly ageless tutor, Edward Douse, never far off. Yet Percy knew that Algernon should have a fine marriage match, and so, under Douse's watchful eye, with his three magi, Harriet, Warner and Hughes, observing from the shadows, Algernon attended social occasions with members of King James's court. A student at Cambridge attending St John's, where his father had gone before him, he was known as a man of great fortune, which is why when Sir Robert Cecil presented to him his daughter during a mask at the recently completed Hatfield House, none present thought it in any way untoward. Cecil said to Algernon, I'm told, your lordship, that, like your father, you are adept at reading horoscopes. Please permit an old man's folly and be so kind as to read my daughter's. This Algernon did, and no sooner had he begun that arcane process than a strange set of coincidences emerged. He read in the stars, in her bloods, in the great many almanacs and books he'd studied so well, copies of which stood in Cecil's own library, that the fate of this girl and his own were inextricably entwined. It is as I thought, Cecil declared with a wry smile. This child, the apple of my eye, is to be yours, as decreed by the heavens themselves. Douse, who knew no better, thought Anne a fine match for his ward, not least as the dark-haired beauty was the daughter of the Lord Protector. No sooner had Algernon given his golden ring to Anne, bearing his family's crest and motto, than Douse had written to his master, appealing for the stars to be studied and the date set for the pair to be wed. The intended union was a cause for celebration, and all the great families present bore witness to the ring on Anne's finger. Somerset, Hartford, Arundel, Pembroke and Shrewsbury all saw it, and all thought Algernon well-matched. Rather than pleased, of course, from his position in the Tower of London, Henry Percy was furious. He knew nothing of Anne's true identity, but it was Cecil who had seen him tried and imprisoned, Cecil who had routed the School of Night, replacing them in the Crown's esteem with the Society of the New Art. And so Percy dispatched Harriet, Warner and Hughes, setting them on a secret quest to prevent the marriage, whatever the cost. While simple murder was considered and favoured by Harriet, Northumberland's magi were far from fools. Each a learned academic, they discussed the merits of curses, poisons and spells, but Warner knew that Cecil was a man whose homes were all defended against the dark arts. Cecil's allies included skilled natural philosophers like Nicholas Culpepper and Peter Coles, as well as great minds and thinkers such as William Byrd and Orlando Gibbons, who wove spells into music which echoed through Cecil's halls, banishing shadows and any dark forces within them. Sat amid all this protection like a fairy at the centre of a hoard of gold was Anne, the dark-haired daughter so unlike Francis and Catherine Cecil, both of whom were years older with hair like golden wheat. 
As such, the Magi turned to simpler means. During a madrigal at Arundel Castle, Hughes approached Anne Cecil and, with a deft touch, slipped from her finger the Percy family ring. For the Magi knew that without the ring, Anne would never again appear before Algernon. Its loss would be so shaming and such a dishonour that the marriage would be cancelled by default. Thinking themselves wise to dispose of the evidence in the most thorough manner possible, the Magi rode all the way up to Northumberland, where the ring began its life. At Bamba Castle, they conducted an unholy rite, commanding the ring to only return to the rightful heir of the House of Percy. Then they tossed the ring into the sea, rode south once more, and considered the matter settled. Algernon was, of course, heartbroken. His father continued to attempt to control him, but Algernon was wilder now, a child of passion, just like his forefathers of old. He studied law at Middle Temple, but so close to the court, with Anne always kept from him and away from all eyes at the time, he felt he had no other choice than to go abroad. So it was that for six years Algernon toured Europe, always in the company of Edward Douse. He travelled first to Italy, then back through France and the Dutch Republic, ever seeking a beauty to rival the woman whose face he saw in his dreams. His star wife, his bride of fate, Anne, the only one for him. In the meantime, Cecil died and Anne became the ward of his son, William. Much older than she, William Cecil assumed the role of her father, yet he was unnerved. Though he grew older, his hair threaded with grey, Anne did not. Her pale skin and raven hair and twinkling eyes appearing alike to him as when his father had first introduced them so many years ago. The wizard earl, Henry Percy, was then freed from prison in 1621, by which time he was but a shadow of his former self. Abandoned by his magi and banned by the crown from returning to Olnwick, he took shelter at the Bath Inn, as recently renovated by Inigo Jones. Sickly and bitter, though living in luxury, he tried to restore relations with Algernon, who returned to England three years later, but the rift between them was wider than it had ever been. Edward Douse died, and now despondent and alone, Algernon was elected to Parliament. He represented first Sussex, then Chichester, but he'd become a bitter man. Still handsome, with flowing auburn hair, by the time he entered the House of Lords, he had grown frenzied with his fury towards the new king and his allies. Attempts were made to placate him, and he was appointed Lord Lieutenant of Cumberland, Westmoreland and Northumberland. But at every opportunity, Algernon chose to pick at the scab on England's heart. The target of his ire was George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, favourite to the new king, Charles I, who he embarrassed and belittled and enraged. Word then came to Algernon in the autumn of 1628 that his father was finally dying. Out of pity and at the behest of the Duke of Somerset, Algernon met once again with the wizard Earl, the man whose tyrannical treatment had made his childhood so bitter. A date was set for the pair to dine together, and at the Bath Inn, with the Duke of Somerset also present, 
They ate. Their talk was light and airy of matters of no consequence, all parties fearing a slip of the tongue which could explode into violence. The wizard earl, almost blind, racked with fits of coughing, tried to pour honeyed words into his son's ears, but Algernon was resistant. Indeed, it was not words that did for their relationship, but a dish served on a silver platter. It was one of many served to those present, but on that salver lay a fish, cooked in lemon, garlic and butter, into which the Duke of Somerset cut, making a remarkable discovery. By the fates, he declared, holding his knife aloft and stepping backwards, dumbfounded and fit to collapse. I never thought I'd see it again. Algernon rushed about the table, bringing his chair near for his friend, and then he saw it, glinting in the belly of the fish. He pushed his fingers inside, then raised it aloft, the ring he had given Anne, bearing the lion rampant, inlaid in lapis lazuli, bearing the motto, Esperance en Dieu, hope in God. The wizard earl, though sickly, saw the glinting gold and stood, recognising the ring in an instant. Impossible, he roared. My mage, I stole it from that stupid girl and threw it into the sea. You must never marry her, never. No child of that crippled Cecil may wed a child of mine. Algernon, furious, replied, She is not a child of Cecil's father. She is a child of heaven with hair as black as a raven's wing and skin as pale as snow and eyes as green as the seas from whence this ring has returned to me. The meal did not continue and Algernon never spoke to his father again. Less than a year later, he married Anne Cecil, who had not aged a day until that point. And the pair bore only daughters, four in fact, and it was as if the years that passed while they were apart, came rushing in on Anne all at once. Of course, Henry Percy died alone, sheltered by the Duke of Somerset at Petworth House, but the old man never saw his granddaughters or came to realise that the same child he'd tried to drown had grown into the woman his son married. Neither did he live to see Algernon welcomed into the Order of the Garter, appointed Lord Admiral of the British fleet, or serve as one of the greatest leaders on Parliament's side during the Civil War. But that was his just deserts, for Henry Percy had tried to defy fate, who is a cruel mistress indeed. And although Algernon Percy loved Anne with all his heart, the time rushed in on her and her beauty and health faded quickly. She died in 1637, never seeing her children wed. In the wake of her death, Algernon was once again heartbroken. He rebelled against Cromwell, retired to Olnwick, and never again returned to the heart of politics. He did marry once more to Elizabeth Howard, daughter of the Earl of Suffolk, but their son, Jocelyn, died without issue, and the line of the House of Percy was ended forever. Still, Algernon and Anne are at least united in death. They are buried side by side at Petworth in a crypt in the south chancel of St Mary's Church, as perhaps they were always destined to be.
Well, look at you. A whole story without a ghost or a moment of ghastly horror. Well, <laughs> a- apart from when um, Harry Percy held the baby over the rushing brick. <laughs> that was a bit ghastly. But I think personal growth, Martin. Oh, well, I'm trying my best. Besides, we've got haunting season coming up, meaning a whole month of scary stories. So really, I'm just biding my time. <laughs> now, the fish in the ring isn't actually specifically related to the Percy family, is it? No, the story actually recurs across loads of cultures. Folklore Joseph Jacobs located it in Northumberland in his seminal text English Fairy Tales which came out in 1890 but there are versions of the fish in the ring story from ancient Greece ancient India in the Bible oh the ring of Solomon famously yeah Yeah, and in various European traditions including ancient Welsh ancient English ancient Irish and Russian and German folklore so it isn't a new idea at all it's a classic idea isn't it the the idea of trying to dispose of treasure to defy fate but then the treasure reappearing somehow because, well, some things are just meant to happen. And I know this is another area where you and I have a little bit of difference of opinion. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm quite a big believer in fate, whereas you're a bit more sceptical on the topic. Yeah, I I guess it's arrogance in a way. (laughs) I always think that one has the power to change one's fate. Yeah, sure. And I don't necessarily believe that we have to stick to a predestined path throughout our entire lives mm-hmm. i think there's always opportunities to wander off the path yeah maybe i mean perhaps i'm just a little bit more resigned to the idea that while we like to think we're free to make choices in reality i, I don't think we really are i'm not saying i'm like wholly deterministic I, I do think there's probably some wiggle room but i definitely think there are times in each of our lives when we maybe try to deny our fate or destiny or what we know the universe is telling us to do and i don't think it's healthy when we do that i think we need to try and embrace our fates and, and go with the signs we're given by the universe we've talked about this quite a lot and you tend to think that because fate can't be disproven it's probably true yeah i do i mean this is a whole massive area of philosophy and kind of science as well. And I realise my opinion on the matter is pretty unpopular, but plenty of incredibly clever physicists, including Einstein, have believed and many still believe that the universe is deterministic, but that we as creatures just can't comprehend its complexity. This is basically known as super determinism. The idea that there's a clockwork behind the universe we can't know. And when experiments don't work, how we think they're going to do and so on and so forth, it's basically just because we don't understand that hidden clockwork. I I can see that, but I I don't really like the idea of being a number. I'm a human being and (laughs) I do have free will. Yes, well, I mean, you are a a human being and and a lovely one. But just to pick one metaphor, we think about the Big Bang and then the theory of the Big crunch that is at some point the universe will stop expanding and will instead retract returning to the conditions which existed before the big bang and so on it'll explode contract again and again and again which would imply that the big bang and big crunch have played out over and over and over perhaps something close to an infinite number of times meaning we've all done this before and we'll do it again over and over and over and over and over because I, I do have, uh, faith is perhaps the wrong word, but yeah. uh, an understanding of cycles yeah. and the repetitive nature of existence. We're born, we live, we die, we return to the earth, yeah. we're broken down into organic matter, we're born, we yeah. die. You know, I, I definitely uh, can get behind that. It's, it's yeah, also thought to maybe explain deja vu. 
Because if you've done it before, mm, you could have a sort of memory of a past self or past and life. coincidence. And uh, the, I mean, the, it makes a lovely story. The the ring that's thrown into the sea and is eaten by a fish and served up to the very person who wanted the ring disposed of. Yes, I can get behind that. It's a <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful piece of storytelling and it's very tidy. Oh well, thank you. Um, but <laughs> super determinism. Perhaps I need to do a little bit more reading. <laughs> and how did you feel about the setting of the story? Oh, I really enjoyed it. Um, Realised I knew all about the School of Night and the Wizard Earl. Yes. Again, more about Northumberland than yep. I thought. Definitely. Obviously, there's the Petworth House, uh, yeah. which is quite near where we live many times. Didn't realise there was a connection there. Yeah. Uh, or anything to do with Elizabethan magic and Dr. D, I'm always thoroughly happy to hear about. Yes, super Googleable story, everyone. Just pick a name, pick a thing from it. It's a fascinating whole area of history, in my opinion. So, right then, shall we move on to correspondence? Yes, please. Okay. I mean, it's what we were always fated to do. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the first thing to say is thank you so much to, and I hope I'm saying this right, Roman and Only One, who wrote us a lovely review on iTunes. They said, my cup of tea with luxury biscuits from Eleanor and Martin. What more could I want in a podcast? It's light, dark and colourful all in one place. History, folklore and beautifully crafted storytelling. Tips and inspiration for historic places to visit. Thank you for a weekly escape from modern life. Oh, thank you so much, Roman and Only One. That's so kind. And please, if you haven't already done so, please hop onto iTunes or Apple Podcasts and write us a review or drop us some stars Mm -hmm. wherever you get your podcasts. Every little bit really does help other listeners find us. And although it might not be super exciting to everyone, we think it's absolutely amazing. It's very exciting to us. That last week we passed through a major milestone of 50,000 downloads, which is a wildly exciting number. Thank you so, so much to everyone who's listening and sharing and reviewing the podcast and supporting us. You are all amazing speaking of which we should say a special thank you to our likers commenters and super sharers this week including donna eric andy helen john anita nigel and tammy on facebook strax stevenson vivid and veiled Stuart, what the folk angie and miscellany and pirate morgan on instagram and cw reeve nephthys beth guarav and Els on twitter as ever thank you to everyone who has been commenting and sharing and messaging and thank you so 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 much if you haven't already then please join us grong King with all the other ravens on facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast instagram at three ravens podcast and twitter at three ravens pod do please also send us those card design contest entries folklore bits for our second listener episode mm-hmm. and general messages and feedback to three ravens podcast at gmail.com and of course for our episodes ad free and loads of bonus and exclusive content do consider supporting us on patreon for three dollars a month or six dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast podcast so eleanor where are we headed to next week next week we are headed to cheshire and amongst lots of other things i'll be telling the tale of the mermaid of rosthern mere oh that's exciting we haven't had a mermaid for a little while in the meantime though while our story's gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle until you're out of the woods Thanks and credit go to Joan Morgan's Tales of Old Northumberland, Malcolm Green's Northumberland Folktales, and Rob Kirkup's Illustrated Tales of Northumberland, all of which were incredibly useful in my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, 
Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean man With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.